John chapter 7, verses 14 through 31. And if you recall, if you recall previously, his brothers were going to the Feast of Booths. They wanted him to come. They did not believe him at the time of who he was testifying to be. And they said to him, why don't you come and this is a wonderful opportunity to present to the masses of who you are. He said, you go ahead. And he came later on to the feast. And we pick up the account in John chapter 7, verse 14. But when it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. The Jews then were astonished, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? So Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. He who speaks from himself speaks his own glory. But he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true and there is no unrighteousness in him. Did not Moses give you the law and yet none of you carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon who seeks to kill you. Jesus answered them, I did one deed, and you all marvel. For this reason, Moses has given you circumcision, not because it was from Moses, but from the fathers. And on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, we give you thanks for your word and we pray, God, that you would help us to know and understand that we might know you more. In Jesus' name, amen. He was born in an obscure village child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another village and he worked as a carpenter until he was 30. For three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book, never held an office, never had a family, never owned a home. He didn't go to college. He never traveled more than 200 miles from the place where he was born. And he did none of the things that would normally accompany greatness he had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 years old when the tide of public opinion turned from him to against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a child, of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. And while he was dying, his executioners gambled for his garments, the only property he had on earth. 
When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of uh, an acquaintance, perhaps a friend. Nineteen centuries have come and gone. And today, he is the central figure of the human race. All the armies that have ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all of the parliaments that ever sat, and all of the kings that have ever reigned, put together, none have affected all of humankind as this one solitary life. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? That is the one question and is perhaps the most important question that a person will ever need to ask and answer in this life. Charles Templeton, who was a contemporary of Billy Graham, a friend who walked away from God, when he was asked what he thought of Jesus Christ, this is what he said. He wouldn't acknowledge Him as God. He said, He was the greatest human being who ever lived. He was a moral genius. His ethical sense was unique. He was intrinsically the wisest person I've ever encountered in my life or in my readings. He was the most important person in my life. I know it may sound strange, but I have to say I adore him. Everything good I know, every decent thing I know, every pure thing I know, I learned from Jesus. He is the most important human being who has ever existed. And if I may put it this way, I miss him, unquote. And his eyes filled with tears and he wept freely and he refused to say any more as Lee Strobel interviewed him for his book, The Case for Faith. That sentiment, that sentiment is characteristic of many people. That sentiment that Jesus is perhaps the most important person in their life, that He is the wisest, the most moral genius that they have ever read about, that He was the greatest human being who had ever lived. But in their mind's eye, they refused to accept who Jesus claimed to be, that He was the Son of God. They refused to accept Him as God and Savior. They may miss Him. They may cry over Him. They may read about Him all of the day long, but they will not believe that He is the Son of God who died that people might be saved. And that same skepticism, that same skepticism that faces people today was the same skepticism that Jesus faced from the Jews because the masses had their own idea. The masses had their own idea of what Jesus was to be if He was truly the Messiah. They had their own conception of what the Messiah was going to be. And so when Jesus came and He made claims, they opposed Him, they were antagonistic, and they dogged Him at every step. And in today's passage, it was more of the same. From verses 14 to 36, Jesus fields their questions as they began to question who He was and to show that they were clueless. He answers their questions and gives him an opportunity to describe who he was and what his mission was to be. That Christ's source of authority was from God. That who he was and his motivation was for God's glory. That his righteous actions showed his full obedience and that his identity was from God. We see in verse 14, 
His claim to authority was from God as we look at the text. But when it was now in the midst of the feast, Jesus went up in the temple and he began to teach. The Jews then were astonished, saying, how has this man become learned, having never been educated? The first point here is that the source of his authority was from God himself. They were astonished. How is this man so learned, having never been educated? Now, how is that? You see, in Judaism... When there was a well, there was a well-established educational system among the rabbis. The rabbis, there were those who were known to be teachers and had reputations, scholars like Gamaliel or even the Apostle Paul. And these rabbis had people who would follow them, their disciples. And they would teach their disciples as they walked along. They would disciple these followers of them, these students, they would whisper into their ear and the students would proclaim what they would say and they would pass down their knowledge onto their discipled rabbis. And in so doing, when one was well trained, they would have a process of ordination in which they would ordain a young rabbi and from one rabbi to the next, their authority and their credentials would be passed down. It was as if Moses had passed down his credentials to one and so on and so forth on down to other rabbis. And so when they would teach, they would reference rabbi so-and-so said this, rabbi so-and-so said that from rabbi so-and-so. And that is how it would be. That is why when we read in the opening pages of the book of Matthew from chapters 5 through 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus would repeatedly say, you've heard it said, but I say to you, you have heard it said, but I say to you, you have heard it said, but I say to you, because the people have been hearing the misinterpretation of the law. Jesus wasn't correcting the law. He was correcting the rabbinic Traditions which had been handed down, the rabbinic teachings concerning the law, because he wasn't quoting some other rabbi. The rabbis had it wrong and how they had tried to take the law and lower the standard so somehow they might be able to fulfill the law. And that is why, as well, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 7:28, this is what the people said. When Jesus had finished these words... The crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. See, the scribes would quote a rabbi in the past. So-and-so said this, so-and-so said that. But Jesus taught as one having authority. Why? Because his authority, as it says in this text, came from God himself. Verse 16 of John 7, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. And that is what every faithful preacher is to do. He is to teach the Word of God. He is not to teach psychology. He is not to teach his own opinions. He is not to teach the opinions of others. But he is to communicate the meaning of the Word of God. How does one know if it is the Word? What Jesus here says Verse 17, anyone willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak of myself. In other words, one who comes, one who comes and submits themselves under the will of God will know that it is of God, will validate the message of God. 
Many of you know Romans chapter 12, verse 2, where it says, Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And this is what happens. So that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. When your mind is transformed by the Word of God, you validate and you know that it is true and good and acceptable and perfect. It's like when you buy a new pair of shoes. You hear these commercials about all of these clothing lines, a new pair of shoes. You can read about it. You can watch the commercials. You can hear from your friends how wonderful, how comfortable they are, etc., etc. But you won't know how comfortable and well fit they are until you buy one and you wear them and you validate what it is. And likewise, when someone comes into a relationship with Christ, when they come to a saving knowledge of Jesus, when they come to the foot of the cross, they find how truly satisfying Jesus is that God has forgiven them of their sin, that they no longer bear the burden of guilt, that they know God and have peace with Him. And so Jesus was saying, my authority comes from God and it's validated when Khan comes to me. So Jesus was saying for those who believe in him, if you continue in my word, verse chapter 8, verse 31, then you are truly disciples of mine and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The truth of the Word of God sets our hearts free from the bondage of sin, from the guilt we have been bearing. The will of God is that all will come to know Him, to turn from sin, to the Savior that can save their souls. And so God's desire is that we come and ask for forgiveness and ask for eternal life, that we might not be condemned, but that we might have a Savior who will wash away our sins and grant to us access to heaven in a relationship with God that we can know Him now. I've never met a true Christian who has ever taken that step of faith that has regretted coming to God and receiving salvation. Have you? Have you ever come to Christ knowing that you have done wrong and knowing that God is there offering this free gift and all you need to do is place your faith and your trust in Him to turn from sin and ask Him to cleanse your heart and He will grant you eternal life. Secondly, Christ says here in verse 18 what His motive is. His authority is from God. His motive is God's glory. His motive is God's glory. Verse 18, he who speaks for himself seeks his own glory. But he who is seeking the glory of him who sent him, he is true. And there is no unrighteousness in him. There are many self-styled teachers, many self-styled preachers, many people who will place their faces on billboards and promote their own successes, promote their own church or whatever it may be. Cult leaders often promote themselves by means of a prophetic revelation. And many who are false teachers will have this thing where they say that they have heard from God and they cannot be questioned as the spokesman for God. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes in the New Testament, Jesus condemned. 
in Matthew 23, verses 5 through 7, he says of those who are the religious leaders, but they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels on their garments. They love the places of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogue and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. The religious leaders love to be placed up on a pedestal. They love the center stage, the accolades, that people would see them and say, Oh, what a holy person that is. Stealing the glory that belonged to God. Nebuchadnezzar, who was a king of Babylon, whom God had granted the power to come and conquer many lands and whom God had given many riches. It says in Daniel chapter 4, verse 29, in which this king, who did not know God, was musing to himself. It says in verse 29 of Daniel 4, 12 months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power? And for the glory of my majesty, unquote, in his pride and in his conceit, he took the glory that rightly belonged to God. And God's judgment came upon him immediately. For verse 33 says, the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was filled and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven. Until his hair had grown like eagles' feathers and his nails like birds' claws. Unquote. He had taken the glory from God and wanted it for himself. And it's not only, you see, leaders, not only religious leaders, not only those who are in the public limelight who want to glorify themselves oftentimes, but we can as well. When we say something similar to Nebuchadnezzar, Look at all that I've done and we muse to ourselves in our mind. Look at all that I've accomplished. Look at all that I've achieved. Look at all that I have because I've worked hard or because I've studied hard or because I've invested wisely. Look at my things, how far I've gone because I've done all of this and that and said whatever and we pat ourselves on the back and we fail to give credit to God. Knowing that the only reason why we even have opportunity or ability to do what we have done is by the grace of God. That all that we have learned, all the awards that we have perhaps achieved, the salaries we get paid, the jobs that we have, the things that we own, the children that God has given to us are all by the gracious hand of God. And we are to give glory to God for all things. Because in Isaiah 42, verse 8, it says, I am the Lord. God says, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another. And when we recognize that everything is from God, that we are undeserving of even what we have, then there is no pride. For 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 
Because life's not about us. We are not the center of the universe. It's about God. And our purpose in life is always to point to God. If no one gives you a hand, no one pats you on the back, no one recognizes whatever it may be, it is all right because we point to God. And God might increase and Christ might be made known. So Christ's source of authority is from God. His motive is to bring glory to God. And thirdly, His actions are in full obedience to God. His actions are in full obedience to God. Verse 19. Here He begins and it harkens back to what happened in chapter 5. And in chapter 5, you remember, there was a man by the pool of Bethesda. A man by the pool of Bethesda. He'd been lying there for decades. Lame. And Jesus comes and intentionally Jesus heals this man on the Sabbath. On the Sabbath. Now you would think that everyone would be happy. But that didn't happen whatsoever. In fact, the Jews, they were incensed. They were angry at Jesus because he had healed this lame man on the Sabbath. He was carrying his mat. He rolled up his mat and he was carrying it. And they said, you know what? It's against the law to carry your mat on the Sabbath. And after this discourse about what Jesus had done, they were angry that he had healed him on the Sabbath. Chapter 5, verse 16 says, For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. I.e., probably more. Healing maybe others or whatever it may be. And he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but was also calling God his own father. Making himself equal with God. To the Jews, this was blasphemy. And that incident with the Jews is the backdrop of John chapter 7, verse 19. When Jesus begins here, and he says, Did not Moses give you the law? And yet none of you carries out the law. Why do you seek to kill me? How can Jesus say that none of them carries out the law? I'm sure they were very diligent trying to do this and that and this little detail, follow this law, etc. James 2.10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law, and yet stumbles, at one point, he becomes guilty of all. If you fail at one point, you're guilty of all. You're a lawbreaker. You're a breaker of the law. The crowd just sneered. This Jewish crowd sneered at him. And the response was interesting because they said, who seeks to kill you? When just a few verses later, they said, is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? You see, some knew that some were out to see that Jesus would be dead. They said, look, he's speaking publicly. They're saying nothing to him. Some knew. The crowd jeered and they said, you have a demon. And Jesus answered them and said, I did one deed and you all marvel. For this reason, Moses has given circumcision, not because it was from Moses, but from the fathers. But on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? You see, what happened was that you see in Genesis chapter 17, God gave instruction 
that a baby boy would be circumcised on the eighth day. So you would have a child, boy, and on the eighth day he would be circumcised. This was according to the Old Testament back in Genesis 17. But if that eighth day fell on the Sabbath, according to their law, they would allow work to be done in circumcising that baby. Circumcision was seen as a ceremonial cleansing a ceremonial cleansing of one part of the body. And the argument that Jesus is making is this, is that if they are willing to perform circumcision, a ceremonial cleansing on the Sabbath, which was permitted by Sabbath law, then how could they accuse Jesus of healing an entire person on the Sabbath by healing the man at the pool of Bethesda? The argument was from the lesser to the greater. If you're going to allow yourself to do this on the Sabbath and your Sabbath law allows the ceremonial cleansing of a little part, how can you accuse me and be angry with me when I've healed an entire person? He exposes their hypocrisy. And secondly, he promotes the doing of good on the Sabbath. When the Apostle Paul wrote to the Galatians in Galatians 5, verse 3, He says, I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. In other words, Paul was saying to the Jews, look, if you're going to try to be perfectly meticulous and holy before God, By doing all of these good things in your life, you're trying to be circumcised, you're trying to follow the law, you're trying to do all of these good things and you think that you're going to be what? One of God's children by doing those things and you'd better keep all of it because you know what? That is what you're placing yourself under. That's your standard to be perfect by living a perfect life. That's your standard and that's what you'll be judged by. And you know what? No one is perfect. That is why we need Christ. Because Christ is perfect, who fulfilled the law in its perfection. If you're in Christ, Galatians 5, 5 says, We, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but faith working through love. People are saved by faith. Not by an outward work. Oh, I'm a good person. Oh, I do all of these wonderful things. Oh, you know what? I've never done anything terrible. You know what? People are not saved because they've done good things. People are saved because of faith in someone who has done works perfectly. Who has perfected in their righteousness. And that is Christ. That is only through Jesus Christ. And so Jesus says, when you judge, verse 24, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Notice he doesn't say, don't don't judge at all. He doesn't say, never ever judge. He says, judge with righteous judgment. If you're going to judge me, then look, judge impartially, judge justly, judge looking at yourself because you yourselves try to follow the Sabbath. Judge not on some superficial appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. And his judgment 
would be that what? He displayed perfect obedience and allegiance toward God rather than to bow to the anger of the crowd who wanted to kill him. So the question is, what are we committed to? Are we committed to obeying the Word of God, even if it costs us? When I was in Africa, there were some missionaries that we support, and they had a school. And this school had some, you know, overall in the school and the orphanage, they had some 40-odd employees, people who worked underneath them. And one of the teachers in the school was let go. He was fired. And he decided to unjustly take these missionaries to the courts. He brought a lawsuit against them, a frivolous lawsuit, one that had no grounds. But even though it was unjust, these missionaries, they looked to the Word of God and it was their conviction that they ought not go before the world in court because of the testimony. And they decided simply to pay the eight or $10,000 rather than dishonor the Word of God as they understood it to teach. And for missionaries, that is a huge sum of money. Their desire was to honor God and follow the Word of God, even if it cost them eight to ten grand. We committed to obeying God, even if the cost is high. Are we committed to following the Word of God, even if people don't like it? Or even if we don't feel like obeying it, we obey? Are we committed to obeying God, even if, as in Jesus' case here, they wanted to take His life? Christ's obedience was full. It was unwavering. It was non-compromising. So here in this text, we see Jesus' authorities from God. We see His motive was for God's glory. We see His obedience full. And lastly, we see that His identity was from God. His identity was from God. Some of the people, verse 25, Is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? Look, He is speaking publicly. And they're saying nothing to Him. You see, the people discounted Jesus. If you've ever noticed, in the Bible... There are no surnames. There's no last names. You don't find, you know, Paul Smith or Barnabas Rodriguez or Thomas Fong. You know, you don't find any of those. Instead, you find Balaam, son of Beor. You find uh, Joshua, son of Nun. You find uh, Jesus, son of Joseph. And then a tag, a geographical tag. Jesus, son of Joseph of Nazareth. You'll find, too, that they have something like a Joseph of Arimathea, or you'll find Saul of Tarsus. You either have a, 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 a tag by your lineage, or you have a tag by where you were born. These Jews knew Jesus came from Nazareth, and they discounted his credibility because they knew where he was from. Nazareth wasn't the most popular place or well-known place in the world. And in their conception... As I shared with you at the very beginning, their idea of a Messiah was that a Messiah would come suddenly. He would come mysteriously. He would appear on the scene. No one would know where he was from. And he would come as a conquering liberator and throw off the burden of Rome. Verse 28, Jesus cried out in the temple teaching and saying, You both know me and know where I am from. 
I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him and he sent me. The claim that Jesus is making is that you know, you know me and I know God because God sent me. But you know what? You really don't know me, do you? You don't know God who sent me. You think you do. Being a Jew, Jews thought they were automatically included in God's family simply because they were born as children of Abraham. His identity was from God. And because of that, they were infuriated because he was implying that, you know what? The problem's not with me. The problem is with you. He was implying that they were the ones who were guilty for their failure to fully realize who Jesus was. So they were seeking, verse 30, to seize him. And no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. But many in the crowd believed. And they were saying, when the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? Public opinion was confused, was divided. Some believed, others did not. Christ performed many signs, but not all were convinced. And this should encourage us. Why? Number one, when Jesus shared his identity, he shared where he was from, who he was in the person. The effect was some believed and others did not. Some believed and others did not. And the same will be true when we share our faith of who Jesus is. Some will believe, others will not. God has some who are ready and willing there to come to faith in Him. And others will not. They will reject the Savior. Secondly, though, signs or miracles won't convince a person. Signs or miracles, even done by Jesus, didn't convince the people. So it would be fallacious to think that some, oh, if we only had supernatural phenomenon, people who would be raised from the dead or people who would be healed or people who would, whatever it might be, they'll believe then. In other words, the result of people coming to Christ is by the power of God and not some display of power that somehow it draws people in a superficial way. Even those that Jesus shared with didn't come to Christ many times, and even those that Jesus displayed His miracles weren't convinced. It is God who saves and our responsibility to share about the Savior, about who He was, and that is what Christ continued to do. I mean, I used to think that, you know what, when you share the gospel, it has to be perfect. It has to be in the right atmosphere, the right system, the right track, the right method. It's not any of those things as long as it is the right message of the gospel. Because the gospel is powerful in and of itself to save people. And that message is from God. So Christ comes. He comes to share about His authority. His motive is to glorify God. His righteous actions show full obedience and His identity was from God. Why? Because the greatest question that people need to answer for themselves is who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And what am I going to do about the knowledge of God and what Jesus has to offer Everyone needs to know Christ. Everyone needs to know Christ. 
Jim Cimbala, he preaches at a church in the slums of New York, and many of you have probably heard of his name because you've heard of the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir. You've heard of the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir because they're world famous, and he is the pastor there. And he writes about a particular Sunday. It was Easter Sunday. And usually on Easter it is crowded and he was so tired at the end of the day he went up to the edge of the platform right after the service was over. And he says, I pulled down my tie and sat down and draped my feet over the edge. It was a wonderful service with many people coming forward. The counselors were talking with people and as I was sitting there, I looked up the middle of the aisle and there were about a third row was a man who looked about 50, disheveled, filthy. He looked at me rather sheepishly as if saying, could I talk to you? We have homeless people coming in all the time asking for money or whatever. So as I sat there, I said to myself, though I am ashamed of it, quote, what a way to end a Sunday. I've had such a good time preaching and ministering. And here's a fellow who probably wants some money for more wine. He walked up and when he got within about five feet of me, I smelled a horrible smell like I've never smelled in my life. It was so awful that he got close. I would inhale by looking away. And then I'd talk to him and then I'd look away to inhale because I couldn't inhale facing him. I asked him, what's your name? David. How long have you been on the street? Six years. How old are you? Thirty-two. He looked fifty. Hair matted, front teeth missing, wino, eyes slightly glazed. Where did you sleep last night, David? Abandoned truck. I keep in my back pocket a money clip that also holds some credit cards. I fumbled to pick up one out thinking, I'll give him some money. I won't even get a volunteer. They're all busy talking with others. Usually we don't give money to people. We take them to get something to eat. I took the money out. David pushed his finger in front of me. He said, I don't want your money. I want this Jesus, the one you were talking about. Because I'm not going to make it. I'm going to die on the streets. I completely forgot about David and I started to weep for myself. I was going to give him a couple of dollars to someone God had sent to me. See how easy it is? I could make an excuse. I was tired. There is no excuse. I was not seeing him the way God sees him. I was not feeling what God feels. Oh, did that change? David just stood there. He didn't know what was happening. I pleaded with God, God, forgive me. Forgive me. Please forgive me. I am so sorry to represent you this way. I am so sorry. Here I am with my message and my points. And you send somebody and I'm not ready for it. Oh, God. Something came over me and suddenly I started to weep deeper. And David began to weep. He fell against my chest and I was sitting there. He fell against my white shirt and tie and I put my arms around him and there we wept on each other. The smell of his person became a beautiful aroma. Here's what I thought the Lord made real for me. If you don't love 
this smell, I can't use you. Because this is why I called you where you are. This is what you are about. You are about this smell. Christ changed David's life. He started memorizing portions of scripture that were incredible. We got him a place to live. He hired, we hired him in the church to do maintenance. And we got his teeth fixed. He was a handsome man when he came out of the hospital. They detoxed him in six days. He spent that Thanksgiving at my house. He also spent Christmas at my house. When we were exchanging presents... He pulled out a little thing. He said, this is for you. It was a little white hanky. It was the only thing he could afford. A year later, David got up and talked about his conversion to Christ. The minute he took the mic and began to speak, I said, this man is a preacher. This past Easter, we ordained David. He is an associate minister of a church over in New Jersey. And I was close to saying, here, take this. I'm a busy preacher. People need Jesus. Do you realize that? People need Jesus. They need to know who Jesus is. Even last week, we had three people here who were from Tent City, homeless. Did you notice them? Did you talk with them? Did you introduce yourself to them? They came. They came downstairs to have food with us. I talked with them. They were looking for a place. Did you introduce yourself to them? Or did you walk by with eyes on yourself rather than eyes on those who need Christ? When you see people like that, do you say, you know what, they smell. They look funny. They look dangerous. They look whatever it may be. You know, it's people like that who need Christ. What do you do when you see someone you don't know? Do you say, you know what? I don't know them. It's not my personality. I'm not evangelist. Is that what you say? Or do you say, you know what? That smell is the reason why I am here. Because they need the Savior. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would open our eyes that we might see the destiny and the needs of others. That, Father, our eyes might not be so fixed on ourselves, but, Father, that you would impress upon us that there are many who are dying, who are destined for hell, an eternity without the Savior, and they are lost. We pray, Father, that you would help us, God, to share the wonderful bread of life, to share what we have found, hope, love, faith, that we have been saved. There is nothing, O God, inherent in ourselves that we are but beggars who are showing other beggars where to find food. For you have granted to us a great grace and a great faith and a great Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.